It's Wednesday, July 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. It's happening again. As we move to reopen the country, cases are starting to surge, and the demand for testing is increasing. But testing shortfalls are causing long lines in hard-hit states such as Florida and Texas. Without a vaccine, testing has become the first line of defense and delays complicate everything. Emma Court, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for how testing is hitting a snag again. Next, the Coronavirus Resource Center at Johns Hopkins University has become the gold standard for tracking COVID-19 cases and deaths. They help provide near real-time data on how coronavirus is spreading across the world in an environment where case counts are consistently inconsistent. Kyle Swenson, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for more. Finally, despite promises that people should not have to pay for getting sick with COVID-19, doctors are discovering costly, long-term health effects ranging from kidney failure to heart and lung damage. And the question is whether healthcare providers and insurers will pay for the long-term effects. In the meantime, many are being saddled with huge hospital bills. Susanna Luthi, healthcare reporter at Politico, joins us for the costs of treating COVID-19. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We are now having 40 plus thousand new cases a day. I would not be surprised if we go up to 100,000 a day if this does not turn around. And so I am very concerned. Joining us now is Emma Court, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Emma. Thanks so much for having me. It seems that we are back at it again. Uh, Some of the same bad news we were hearing at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. We're starting to see cases rise across the country, and that's making people want to go get tested even more. But as I mentioned, once again, the whole country is grappling with a shortfall of testing, and we can't seem to get over it, even though we are testing much, much more this time around. Emma, tell us a little bit about it. The challenge here is, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, right, there was a a shortfall of testing. People couldn't get tested, and that proved to be an impediment for other efforts to contain the virus's spread, things like contact tracing, other public health work. We're finding ourselves in a somewhat similar situation today, even though testing capacity has expanded significantly from that early kind of period I think the best way to explain it really kind of comes down to those two core ideas of supply and demand. So testing supplies, both swabs that take, you know, test sample to the sort of materials that preserve it while it's transported to the lab, to the equipment that runs the test, you know, it self-processes that test. These different parts of the supply chain have all come under strain, you know, over the last couple of months. And even though these aspects have been alleviated, over time, they haven't been entirely solved. Now, whether it's even possible to solve it is a whole nother question, right? But even as you have these persistent problems around supply and being able to supply tests to the American public, you also have demand getting really ratcheted up with the reopenings. Now you have nursing homes trying to test all of their employees. You have employers saying that they want to maybe provide testing to their employees as well. You have people who haven't even necessarily come into contact with someone who had the infection wanting to get tested just to be sure, right, before they gather with members of their family, for instance, or in social settings and things like that. So all of these things taken together kind of add up to a problem, and we're starting to see that problem coming out in these hotspot states that have begun to emerge, like Texas, 
you know, like Arizona, we're seeing long lines outside of urgent care centers, for instance. A hospital I spoke to in Houston said their lab had gotten you know, double the amount of testing volume in the prior sort of week plus. So these are problems that are beginning to bubble up in these new focuses of the, the pandemic, these parts of the country that are a new focus of the pandemic. And unfortunately, I think with the trajectory being what it is, you know, it sounds like these problems are going to continue over time. You mentioned Texas specifically. They have pretty robust setups for testing. I think they converted a few high school football stadiums or something like that so that people can roll through and get tested. And even then, you know, by midday, mid-morning or whatever, they've reached their capacity and they have to turn people away. So what it's translating to is really long wait times to actually get tested and then longer wait times to get those results back as well. And we're seeing the cases surge throughout the United States and a bunch of states are having to roll back their reopening procedures because of all these uh, surge in cases. What's important to note here is like in Texas in particular, we did some reporting in that state and, you know, it wasn't just getting in to get the test, which in, in many places you have to, in Texas, you basically have to get an appointment to get tested. So you might wait a week or something like that just to go get tested. And then at that point, we're likely to see weights for test results increase too. You know, one of the big trade groups that represents the big commercial labs here in the U.S. said basically they're forecasting a real big surge in demand in the coming weeks, and they're expecting that that may delay test results. Importantly, when you wait a long time for test results, I mean, a week is an extreme scenario, but even having to wait a couple of days, that's an amount of time that maybe if you're thinking, oh, I probably don't have COVID-19, I can go about my life, I can go to work, things like that, you know, that adds risk into the equation, basically. Yeah. And so the longer you wait for test results, the more likely this risk is going to compound. The U.S. processed about 557,000 tests each day on average over the last week. But given the current outbreak, they say that we need millions, two to four million tests a day to really kind of track all of this stuff. The burden is all on the states. They get limited supplies and they have to allocate all that. So it's kind of a whole ripple effect because it's tough to keep that in track. And then beyond that, when it comes to contact tracing, all these delays make it much, much harder to do all that contact tracing. As you were just mentioning, people go about their business not getting a test and they can be infecting people and not really know it. This is a point where contact tracing systems, if they're not already you know, established and robust, can easily get overwhelmed um, when you have really large numbers in cases. And so, I mean, ideally you wouldn't want to get to this point, but when you have like delays in test results or you have, for instance, aging infrastructure where test results are getting reported by stats, that slows down the process. And that's kind of where we are in the U.S. I mean, I don't think it can be underemphasized at this point that we have not invested in the kinds of infrastructure we need to get this infection under control, but it's not too late. You know, a lot of public health experts say we can still take these kinds of steps. We can still invest in public health infrastructure. We can still make more robust systems for testing. We can test smarter. That's when a lot of people have also said, maybe the focus shouldn't be on testing everyone. Maybe we should focus on the places where there's most likely to be transmission and also be smarter about how we reopen. What are the places in which the virus is most likely to sort of spread in the community that increasingly seems to be bars, right? We've heard that become a big talking point coming out of states where these hotspots have emerged. You know, Texas closed the bars late last week. We've heard Florida move towards taking similar steps as well. So I think there are some questions about 
if our infrastructure isn't up to snuff, are there ways we can tailor our approach? Emma Court, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. His program he was in was all about modeling diseases and using computers and data to kind of see their pattern. And so one day he was having coffee with his advisor, Dr. Lauren Gardner, and together they came up with the idea of making a a dashboard that would track these cases. Joining us now is Kyle Swenson, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Kyle. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. As we've been tracking the coronavirus pandemic throughout the world and here in the United States, one of the most important tools that we've been using is coming from Johns Hopkins University and their coronavirus dashboard, which really has numbers of the cases and deaths throughout the world, throughout the United States. I mean, it has really become the premier source to find those numbers. I think more people probably go there than they do to the CDC's webpage. You see it like on CNN and other news sources. They go straight to Johns Hopkins numbers. But it's a pretty interesting story how this whole thing got started, how it evolved to what it is. Kyle, tell us a little bit about it. So really, it started as a student project. In late January, a first-year PhD student at Johns Hopkins, who happens to be from China, his name's Enshin Dong, he had been talking to family members and friends back in China. He knew about the virus that was spreading from Wuhan. And at the same time, at Johns Hopkins, his program he was in was all about modeling diseases and using computers and data to kind of see their pattern. And so one day, he was having coffee with his advisor, Dr. Lauren Gardner, And together, they came up with the idea of making a a dashboard that would track these cases. And again, this was in late January. So, you know, at that time, the virus didn't really have the global spread. It had yet to really kind of explode in the United States. So when they sat down, they thought that this would be a real small scale project, something that other researchers would possibly look into. But they didn't conceptualize it as something that would all of a sudden be the gold standard for the world, really, in tracking the spread. And when it first started it was very crowdsourced. They would be getting numbers of people uh, posting stuff online and going through Twitter. That's how they'd be getting a lot of the numbers. This was before governments really started posting numbers that they were gathering. So they started out that way. And then beyond that, they soon found out all of the inconsistencies because, and we've done, we've talked about in the podcast before it varies from country to country, state to state, county to county, people counting probable cases of COVID. I mean, it just gets pretty unruly. At first, they're just going through Twitter accounts. They're going to uh, media reports. It was a real grassworks effort, a real grassworks effort at the beginning, just trying to get good sources for the data. And then actually, as countries and as the United States and states and counties within the states began reporting data, it became even more difficult, I think, for them because there was so much inconsistency there. And they knew that going in. To their credit, they were always open and honest about that and that those difficulties, but they really leaned into the mission, I think. And it's kind of the beautiful thing about the Johns Hopkins project is it starts with a student, his advisor, and really all these other people from across the campus began saying like, oh, hey, I could help with this, or we could add a feature that looks at census data or or hospital capacity in the counties. So a lot of these experts who had never known each other, right, had never worked before together, began jumping on this project. And of course, by this time, really, everyone's sequestered at home on lockdown because of the virus. And so they're coordinating this through Zoom calls and emails. And it kind of beautifully came together. 
a lot of times what the researchers are saying and, and in your story too, they said that getting lost in the numbers too is kind of the story that is being told of American life throughout the pandemic, kind of the inequities. They started seeing all the trends and how minority communities were being disproportionately affected by this. And this all started coming out once the data machine really started getting rolling. And they were able to tell another story when they started expanding it and they made the U.S. dashboard. They wanted to tell the story of the healthcare capacity the demographics of each country, and then comparing county disease data to the state as a whole. And this is where the real picture started forming. I think all of us in the media had heard kind of anecdotally that, especially when the virus hit the United States, that communities of color were really suffering more than more affluent and whiter communities. And what this tracker did, and again, to their great credit at Johns Hopkins, they realized that this was a way to explore that, you know, is that true? And by giving you more context than other pieces of data, say, you know, if this certain neighborhood has these number of ICU beds access to versus another, you know, that really plays out along racial lines. And it became very, very clear that the story that was there in the data was really one of very deep-seated and generational inequality. And it was really interesting, obviously, because, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen kind of the explosion of protests and demonstrations about you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. And for a moment, it kind of seemed that the coronavirus had been pushed off the front pages and people weren't thinking about it anymore. But really, if you looked at the data, and John Hopkins did a great job of doing this, they were the same story very much. And, and they were very, very entwined. Kyle Swenson, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Then what happens when they have these complications? The government is only reimbursing for primarily when coronavirus is the primary diagnosis. What happens if they have a stroke? Joining us now is Susanna Luthi, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Susanna. Thank you. I wanted to talk about coronavirus and the costs associated with it. Obviously, there's huge healthcare costs going on around the country. And early on when this started, the president and even in more localized, you know, states and cities, everybody was saying that nobody should incur the cost of getting coronavirus, COVID-19, and we're going to help you out. As I said, the president promised to pay for COVID care, but there's a lot of people that are seeing a lot of long-term symptoms, a lot of long-term health effects, ranging things from uh, kidney failure to heart and lung damage. As we know, COVID affects the body in a, a ton of different ways. And people are getting hospital bills associated with this. And it doesn't seem that the president has been paying for it, let's say, or will continue to pay for it. It gets a little complicated. Uh, Susanna, tell us a little bit about this. When the people talk about the healthcare system in the U.S. being complicated, they're talking about the payment being complicated, right? And the story of American healthcare is how expensive it is. So it's no uh, surprise, really, that the coronavirus became a story about costs and is becoming more and more of a story about costs as uh, testing grows, testing costs are high, uh, treatment costs are high. And then there's just the nature of coronavirus, which is that it's new. We don't know a lot about it. And yes, doctors on the front lines are reporting these complications. And to the defense of policymakers who are stuck with trying to figure out all the payment complications. There's no data really yet 
Are all these complications caused directly from coronavirus? Are some of them stemming from pre-existing conditions and some of the patients? All of that is unknown, but in the meantime, what we do know is this disease is hard on the body. Patients are seeing some very serious consequences like kidney failure, as you mentioned, blood clots that lead to all kinds of issues, heart inflammation, and the costs for these are quite high. And the White House set up a fund to cover uninsured patients. It was considered, you know, a, a good way to take care of the people who went into this pandemic without insurance, kind of a direct way. But then what happens when they have these complications? The government is only reimbursing for primarily when coronavirus is the primary diagnosis. What happens if they have a stroke? This is a conversation going on right now. Hospitals that want to get paid, obviously, are, are a big part of this conversation. And then even on the private insurance side, insurers are not universally on the same page about how to approach this. Again, they want more data. You know, they want more information and, and more knowledge about how to assess these conditions. At least one major insurer I talked to said, yes, they're covering all these complications as long as coronavirus is on the diagnosis list, but others have not come to a consensus. Yeah, and as you mentioned, the difficulty really stems in if a doctor is going to say, okay, all of these other things are directly related because you got COVID-19. And as we mentioned, since it hits the body in a bunch of different ways, how long would you even pay for those long-lasting illnesses as well? There are some numbers as to some costs associated with this. So for a six-hospital stay for a coronavirus patient with an underlying health condition or complications, that averages more than $74,000. On the lower end, a typical hospital stay for coronavirus patient is about $23,500. Um, but as the discussion is, insurers don't have a clear picture of what these long-term effects are going to be. You know, How long will they have to cover these costs associated with it afterwards? And the other complicated picture is when the $74,000, for example, reflect hospital charges. That's kind of like the wish list the hospitals give. They typically overcharge as kind of a bartering mechanism to get higher rates. And then commercial insurers will come in and then pay less than that. Obviously, Medicare and Medicaid set the rates. So it all creates kind of this very messy picture. And if you're uninsured or if you have a plan where you have a very high deductible and Right now, you know, if you have coronavirus, plans are waiving deductibles and coinsurance, which can also be quite high. So you have to pay 20% of a massive hospital bill. That's very high. You know, if your insurance company is no longer saying they're going to pay for, you know, fully cover a lingering condition that's caused from coronavirus, then you can be on the hook. So it's definitely a cost story to watch. And as I say, with U.S. healthcare, usually it's always a whack-a-mole of how patients right. can get hit with costs. You have to watch these policies very closely. Susanna Luthi, healthcare reporter at Politico, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Have a good one. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Vincent Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.